Hello and welcome. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast, a bi-weekly show about the green economy in Canada, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, we have a special on the dollars and cents of fighting wildfires. As extreme wildfires sweep through parts of Canada and the U.S. right now, I speak to one of Canada's leading wildfire experts about what's causing them and how to calculate the mounting costs. After that, Mike Moffat caps it off with his usual list of five other things happening in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. We are following multiple wildfires burning in British Columbia. And there are more than 200 wildfires burning in B.C. today. 30 fires in northwestern Ontario are out of control. Wildfire smoke blanketing the province is starting to take its toll on people and businesses. More than 130 families out of their homes. 300 wildfires are currently burning and nearly a third are considered out of control. It's the middle of July and Canadians are waking up to an astonishing number of extreme wildfires. At the time of broadcast, the Weather Network is reporting 800 active wildfires across Canada, a number of emergency community evacuations, and air quality alerts due to wildfire smoke in every part of Canada, including our major cities. It's the makings of another record year for wildfire destruction. The province of British Columbia, for example, has already recorded 10 times more forest burned than in all of last year with one village already wiped off the map. This is the stuff of climate change. By all accounts, we need to expect longer and more intense wildfire seasons. We're living it right now. And today's question is what are we paying for it? What does it cost to fight a wildfire? And how many dollars will Canadians pay in order to manage the longer and more intense wildfire seasons coming our way? I'm excited to speak with one of Canada's top wildfire experts about this. His name is Edward Strusick. Edward's an award-winning academic, including recipient of the Sir Sanford Fleming Medal for outstanding contributions to the understanding of science. He's also the author of a number of books, including Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future. Edward, thanks for being on the show today. Glad to be on. Ed, the wildfire situation in Canada and the U.S. is evolving quickly. I did my best to to sum it uh, up off the top. Which specific wildfires or areas are you most concerned about right now? Well, I think we're all focused on British Columbia. Uh, They have so many fires now that are active or out of control, and it's still early in the summer and we see virtually no relief in in the uh, the Kamloops, Kelowna, Southern BC area. So that's the place to watch. And in fact, that's really just the north end of a long series of wildfires that go right down into the United States. Oregon, the bootleg fire there is just uh, it's 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 almost uh, Fort McMurray like in its size and nature. Hmm. Uh, you know, I was peering at Natural Resource Canada's wildfire weather map this morning and also showing extreme spots uh, in the north, in Yukon Northwest Territories, uh, parts of uh, northwestern Ontario. Is the scope of these wildfires uh, unique for this time of year? Uh, I wouldn't say that they're unique. We've had bad fire seasons in the past, um, 
and this is another one of them. But I think what we're seeing now is a pattern of having more uh, extreme wildfire seasons like this and more pe- people in the path of the fire. Uh, you know, and it's just getting hotter and drier uh, in the forest area of Canada, at least mostly Western Canada. And so we're just seeing an acceleration of very intense fires. And and maybe we can, you know, put uh, this year's wildfire season, uh, so far as we are seeing it uh, at this stage, um, in context. Uh, you know, maybe you could give us a bit of a, an overview of, of what these wildfire seasons typically look like. Well, you know, we go right back to 1825 when the biggest fire in North American history was in New Brunswick. The Miramichi Fire burned 1.2 million acres and killed as many as 500 people. Mm. And since then, you know, we've had this series of fires, um, Saguenay, Fernie, Baudette, Minnesota, Rainy River area of Ontario, the huge, very deadly porcupine fire in Ontario, followed by Matheson. Uh, there was sort of a pattern of 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 fire events uh, that really reflected the fact that we didn't have much uh, in the way of control and management and not a lot of ability to suppress these fires like we have now. Uh, We have, you know, incredible resources to be able to deal with fires like those that we've had in the past. The problem is, is that it's no longer sufficient. What, what what do we attribute the causes uh, of wildfires to in, in the past and, and this year? Well, in the past, they tended to be, the big fires tended to be lightning triggered. Um, and if you really go way back in the past, we had, you know, uh, railroad companies were responsible for a lot of big fires, as they still are today. You know, there's some question as whether or not uh, it was a spark from a railroad uh, locomotive that uh, passed through Linton. Mm. We don't know. Um, but, you know, it's a combination of lightning strikes uh, in remote areas. They tend to cause the big, really big fires. Uh, and then there's humans. We know that the humans caused uh, the Fort McMurray fire. We don't know who or in what way, uh, but we have a combination of both. And in each case, they do a lot of damage. The one nice thing about lightning-triggered fires is that, you know, they're not all bad. We have a boreal forest that was lar- is largely born to burn. Uh, lodgepole pine, for example, can't basically regenerate unless uh, fire, uh, hot fire opens up the cones and spreads the seeds. So fire can be good and it can be bad. The problem is we're seeing an increasingly number of bad fires. And is what makes a bad fire just that humans are in its path or what makes a bad fire versus an okay fire? Um, Well, a bad fire from our perspective, you know, the human's perspective is, is that one that is endangering property and human lives. Uh, but you can also have a fire that's so intense and so hot, it burns right down into the duff and destroys basically all of the nutrients that are required for t- trees to regenerate. And we're seeing more and more of those kinds of fires where it really creates this, uh, uh, a landscape that uh, is not likely to produce uh, a forest. Huh, so when it comes to nature, fire can be good, uh, but some of these more intense and longer burning fires uh, can be extremely bad. Um, 
Now, in terms of the causes of these fires, you, you know, they say they can be human caused, and some people might be thinking, you know, of, of arson. But really, I think what you're referring to are, you know, stray cigarette butts, uh, you know, other small sparks that are that are maybe accidentally caused. Um, is this a point of concern that actually, you know, the conditions are so dry uh, that that small little kind of inadvertent uh, sparks like that can cause wildfires on the scale that we're seeing? They can in many different ways. You know, Fort McMurray was likely caused by a quad, you know, where the muffler, very, very hot, Mm. uh, comes in contact with some very dry twigs or grass. Um, We have legislation and controls in place where we can prohibit people from going into the forest with a quad or with, you know, the purpose of, uh, uh, you know, having a campfire or whatever. the problem is is that we're not enforcing them as strictly as perhaps we should be doing. Uh, you know, people, the politicians tend to be reluctant to tell people what to do. And I think that's the problem is that we've just got to start exercising a bit of muscle and making sure that industry and people uh, aren't causing fires. I think 45% of the fires in BC are human-caused. And and it's amazing that uh, that they're already able to ascertain what has been human cause and and nature caused. Ed, in your book, you know, back back to the history of wildfires in Canada. In your book, you note that two thousand three was a turning point. Why is that? Well, for a number of reasons. You know, it was not a big fire year. There are not a lot of fires burned on the landscape that year, but there was. For the first time, uh, there were a lot of communities that were in the line of fire. Uh, you know, for an example, Crow's Nest Pass in southern Alberta, most of the people spent uh, the summer out, you know, away from their homes because fires burned all summer long. Uh, you had the Kelowna and Kamloops fire that forced fires that forced an evacuation of 45,000 people. We had fires in uh, Banff and Jasper National Park and one really dangerous one uh, in the Kootenai National Park, uh, which I was at, uh, that nearly jumped into Banff. And had it jumped into Banff, it may have been, you know, the worst fire in a national park ever. Uh, And it required some pretty unorthodox methods to stop that fire from jumping into Banff. I mean, we even had polar bear country burn in uh, western Hudson Bay that year. And it basically tapped all the resources that we had at hand, so much so that in British Columbia, they were triaging. They were basically, they didn't have enough resources to fight fire, all the fires that were burning. And so they were essentially letting fires that were not endangering people or property to burn themselves out. They had no choice. So that was that was an interest that that was one part of it. The other part of it is is that uh, it really I think I, I I don't know that anyone would disagree. I think it was kind of a signal that the world was warming up, especially Western Canada was warming up in a way that was conducive to more bigger and hotter fires, and so we had fire behavior uh, in places like Kootenai that uh, startled veteran firefighters and in Banff. You know, the one classic example was, uh, uh, 
there was a smoldering fire in Banff and they brought in a helicopter to drop some buckets of water on top of it. And the downdraft from that water being dropped down actually caused the fire to spread. And then they had to bring in an mm-hmm. air tanker. That kind of fire behavior, you know, was just shocking to the firefighters who, who were there at the time. They'd never seen anything quite like it. Mm-hmm. And now it's just commonplace. Mm. So you mentioned warming. Um, you know, it's the first time we've mentioned climate change. Is it just understood that these longer and more intense wildfire seasons that we've seen over the past uh, few years in Canada are climate related? Well, many of them are. You know, you can't specifically say that one is or one is <clears throat> one is not. But you just have to look at the temperatures, and if you look at the equations, they're fairly complex. But to give you you know, a good example is that for with every one degree increase in temperature, you have an increase of about 12% in lightning strikes. That's interesting. Every, uh, let me make sure I've got that right. Every degree increase leads to a 12% greater likelihood of lightning strikes. Did I get that right? Approximately, yeah. Approximately. yeah. And I don't want to dissect that. I know that's, you know, uh, probably a a rough average. But for example, in Lytton, British Columbia, which we know in, in late June set Canada's newest temperature record three days in a row, reaching practically 50 degrees, uh, four degrees over uh, what had been the previous high, you know, that's that's four degrees over. So does that, you know, equal a almost a 50% greater likelihood of, of lightning strikes in that in that area? Well, it, it depends on whether or not there's a, a weather front uh, associated with it. Right. Uh, and in Lytton, fortunately, uh, if the, if you can say any good about it was, is that there was a fairly stable blue sky, you know, high pressure system over the area and no cold front came in, uh, had a cold front come in, uh, that would have, you know, brought in wind and spread that fire as it did in Fort McMurray in May of 2016. So it really, when you look at lightning, it generally has to be associated with a uh, a cold front that comes in, into a very hot area. But we're also now seeing something else happening is that now fires are, are burning so hot that they're actually creating their own thunderstorms. They call them pyro CBs. Mm. And they can shoot out lightning uh, so for example, Fort McMurray, uh, 30 kilometers from the fire front. So you can have a high pressure system, blue skies, not a cloud in sight, and the fire can burn so hot, it will create its own thunderstorm. And it triggered a cluster of fires 30 kilometers away from the fire front. Wow. That was, that was Fort McMurray in, in 2016. Uh, yeah, it was Fort McMurray in 2016, and everyone at that time thought, boy, this is a one-off. This is really unusual. We've never seen anything like that. Since 2016, it's become a very regular occurrence. BC had five pyro CB events, I think it was in 2018, that burned so hot that the smoke was detected in Greenland. And, you know, it busted through the troposphere where all our weather, you know, occurs and into the stratosphere and then just circled the globe a couple of times. Um, So those kinds of events, we basically did not see prior to 2003. There were there were some 
some suspicions that it was happening, but they were so weak, you know, they really didn't register in any significant way. Uh, now, pyro-CBs are a very common occurrence, and this is really only in the last five, six years that we're seeing them become a common event uh, in fire situations. So we have a, a new uh, challenge on the landscape now that wow. we've never had before. Wow. Okay, so uh, as you say, uh, these fires are getting more intense over the past few years. We had Fort McMurray in 2016. Uh, British Columbia had two record years in 2017 and 2018 in terms of, of uh, kind of the amount of forest burned. Um, I'm interested in the economics of, of fighting wildfires, uh, what the impacts are on, on, on the economy, what, what the immediate costs are of, of fighting these fires. If, if we're going to be fighting more of these intense fires in the coming years, how, how do we need to prepare just from a, you know, making sure that we've got the money and the resources available to fight these fires? What are some of the costs that, uh, that are incurred when fighting a fire like the Fort McMurray fire in 2016? Well, Fort McMurray, to give you, that's a good example, is at one point there were more than 2,000 firefighters uh, dealing with that fire. And wow. they came from Mexico, the United States, uh, and even South Africa. Uh, that's how extreme that situ situation was. Wow. And then they deployed as many air tankers as they possibly could, as well as helicopters. Uh, and that fire burned for a long period of time and the total cost was in excess of in in around a half a billion dollars wow. you know perhaps one of the most costly firefighter fires that um in history but the overall cost in terms of the amount of damage that was done and how much restoration needed to be invested in uh, totaled over $9 billion. Some They're still calculating it. It could be $10 billion. And I think it was for, for the first time it actually affected the GDP. Um, what fires are also doing now that we really didn't see in the past is that they are potentially – uh, going to have an impact on your, our utilities because most of our power lines are through forests. Look at northern Quebec mm -hmm. uh, going into New York State. And you only have to look at what happened in California where PG&E uh, caused a whole bunch of different fires and they were in brownouts and blackouts rotating all summer long that year uh -huh. and forced essentially the bankruptcy of one of the biggest utilities in the state. And you also have transportation issues. Uh, the Lytton Fire actually stopped the railroad companies from passing through. And mm -hmm. if you have big fires in the future, you know, highways can be closed, uh, railroad lines can be closed for a time, and it all adds up. I, you know, I don't think that we've really done a full counting of what the economic impact is of wildfire. Um, events have take, overtaken our ability to really, you know, from an academic point of view, to really tally what the total costs are. Hospitalizations rise fairly dramatically during a fire because people with respiratory problems end up in the hospital. They can't breathe. And we're only beginning to register that. So uh, mm -hmm. there are unknown costs, but we also know that you know, a big fire like Fort McMurray can be a $10 billion. Wow. So that's interesting. And and, and as you say, there's, it, it sounds like, 
you know, we haven't really refined those accounting tools uh, yet to be able to uh, authoritatively say, you know, this wildfire cost this much. No, we haven't. Uh, Fort McMurray was a good start because it was so big, it was so catastrophic, you know, 88,000 people uh, fleeing that uh, it, 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 it could not be ignored. And so a number of people from different disciplines decided to have a look at it mm. and start analyzing the true costs. And I think we're going to be seeing more and more of that because, you know, there's a projected doubling increase in the amount of fire burning on the landscape, you know, in the next 20 or 30 years. And some say it could even be a tripling over the longer term. It's almost unimaginable. We really don't have the resources right now to be able to deal with a doubling. We're having a hard time dealing with the existing situation. Um, And you've advocated for some time about the need to to adapt and be more prepared for these wildfires. Is reducing our greenhouse gas emissions just too little too late to to contain uh, this, this evolving wildfire situation? Well, I don't think it's uh, it's too late. Uh, it's not going to solve the problem now or even in the next 10 or 20 years. But if we're thinking long term, uh, we're going to have to do something because we cannot withstand a tripling of wildfire uh, in a civil society. Uh, so decarbonizing, uh, controlling uh, climate change uh, is extremely important. It, uh, it, it, it goes without saying that uh, if this continues, we're doomed. Um, we just can't be living through summer after summer of uh, living in smoke and dealing with wildfire. And But that's the situation now we're seeing in not only the Canadian West, but the American West. And I think that the advice to people in Ontario and Quebec is that it's coming there sooner or later. And it has, you know, there's been signals. Georgian Bay burned in 2018 in a way that they no one ever thought it really could burn because it's too humid, too wet uh, for fires to burn as big and intensely as that one did. And I think that uh, this is something that we have to kind of grapple with. If, if this continues, we're doomed. I think that's the quote I'm, I'm going to take from this uh, interview. Uh, oh, well, one, one other question for you, Edward. What do we expect now for, for the rest of the summer? Oh, God, I don't know. You know, uh, I, I, I don't hold out a lot of hope for BC right now because I just looked, you know, I've been watching the forecast and it's still hot, dry weather for the next week. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, it's still, we're still in July and we can have fires going right into September, October. Uh, you know, the Keno fire in Waterton, I think, happened in the early autumn. Um, and that was a fire that uh, essentially resulted in the evacuation of the park. So mm. we may just be at the beginning of, of of a really, really big fire season. And if you look at the drought prediction net networks, uh, they all point to things not getting any better. Uh, but the one thing that I've learned uh, from watching Mother Nature is that it can change on a dime. Uh, Fort McMurray, you know, that was heading to be the biggest fire in North American history. And then in late June, it just started to rain. So it's it's hard to predict, but basically all the signs right now are suggesting that this is, at least for the West, this is really turning out to be 
a potentially very volatile fire season. Okay. Edward, it's been really great speaking with you. Thanks for taking some time out to explain this, this evolving wildfire situation to us. Thanks for having me on. That was Edward Strusick. For a link to Edward's book, his recent articles, and a teaser for his upcoming book, go to this episode's landing page at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. And if you've been following the Smart Prosperity Podcast Summertime Book Club, you'll be interested in what Edward told me he's excited to be reading this summer. One that I think just I'm I'm not looking forward to, but I think think it would be extremely informative is Laura Spinney's book Pale Rider, which is on the 1918 Spanish flu, and she wrote a pre-COVID, so. I'd be interested to see what she had to say because, uh, you know, like the the calls for doing something about wildfire, I think her message was prescient. Now, there's a lot happening in the green economy, too much for me to cover on my own. And so at the end of every episode, I turn to my colleague, Mike Moffat. Mike is a senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute. And here he is with five other things happening in the green economy this week. I'm Mike Moffat, and here are the five things I'm watching this week. Number one, at least 190 people are dead and more than 1,000 missing after extreme flooding hit Western Europe over the weekend. The flooding has also caused over $2 billion in physical damage, including the destruction of entire neighborhoods. The extreme weather event is in line with scientific projections of the impacts of climate change. Number two, just one day prior to the catastrophic flooding, Europe ratcheted up its climate change ambition with a new target to cut emissions by 55% below 1990 levels over the next 10 years. The new plan expands Europe's carbon price to include air travel and proposes the world's first ever carbon border tax. Number three, China has officially launched the world's largest carbon pricing system. The system applies a carbon price to more than 2,000 power plants emitting 4 billion tons of greenhouse gases. Experts warn that the price being set will be too low to be effective. At 50 yuan per ton, it's 75% lower than Canada's carbon price and 85% lower than recommended by the International Monetary Fund. Number four, Israel has announced its plans to extend its tax on plastic bags, which reduced their use by 80% to other single-use plastics. The country is the second biggest per capita consumer of single-use plastics in the world and has joined countries like Canada in committing to reduce plastic pollution. Number five, Canada's green bond market hit record levels last quarter, with investors buying $4.9 billion worth of bonds for projects like renewable energy and clean technology adoption. While the pandemic has stalled the global green bond market, Canada is on pace to beat its previous record set in 2019. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things that I'm watching this week. Thanks, Mike. For a second glance at those stories, Mike has them written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Well, that's it for another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. If you liked it, please tell your colleagues and friends. And if you have feedback or questions, I'm always available. My contact info is at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. In the meantime, let me include the usual disclaimer. 
that the views shared on this podcast are not necessarily those of Smart Prosperity Institute. We just like having smart and evidence-based conversations. I'm Eric Campbell. I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. Thanks again for listening. The next episode is out August 4th.